Okay, we are starting 1 Corinthians today, and we will spend quite a bit of time on introductory material, history, geography, politics, stuff like that, so we can, so we can understand who these people are. Yes. So let's, let's open with a word of prayer first. Father God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you as we're beginning this new book on Corinthians, and, and Lord, for all the, uh, all the different topics and information you give to us in this book. We just pray as we go through it that you'll help us to understand your word, help me as I study to understand your word, and Lord, help us all to apply it in our lives. We pray you bless our time now, in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we will begin, we will start reading in chapter 1. We'll just read verses 1 through 9. She left for a second. Yes, you get to start. I was on the introductory page. I was on that page. Verse 1. Paul, Paul to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and for our brother Sosthenes. Good enough. Sosthenes or something. I probably butchered it. First Corinthians, yes. <laughs> Did it match me yet? No, Timothy was named in Second Corinthians. And I'm okay. like, why are you struggling with Timothy? <laughs> okay, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. So going back in history, um, the first thing I thought was interesting, the mythological founder of Corinth was a character called Sisyphus, or Sisyphus. Something like that. He was a demigod. You probably don't know the name, but you know who he is. He did something wrong, and he was condemned to spend eternity in Hades pushing a rock up the hill. Wow. You've seen the pictures of that? The yeah. guy trying to push a rock up the hill forever. So he's famous for that. So that's the myth, the myth of the founding of Corinth. What did you say, Joe? Has he ever got to the top of the hill yet? No. It's eternal punishment. He'll never get to the top of the hill. He's just pushing that rock. So, anyways, uh, back to actual history. So, in, in Esther, uh, we were looking at events in Persia. So, we were in the early part of the 5th century BC. So, what was Corinth like then? Um, Greece was divided up into city states. It wasn't a part of the Persian Empire, it was individual city states. Um, Athens was the largest, the strongest, most powerful one. Um, there's also was Sparta, there was Troy, and there was Corinth, and there was others in addition. But they all were kind of independent. 
And sometimes they'd fight with each other, sometimes they'd gather together for common defense. And that gathering together for common defense was what we were, actually was a preface to the book of Esther because Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, attacked um, Greece. And he came you know, up through Turkey, across the Bosphorus, and there was a narrow gap at one place, and this is where the Spartans, from the city of Spartan, this is where the 300 Spartans held off you know, hundreds of thousands of Persians long enough for the rest of the Grecian cities to get together and develop a common defense plan. So the two, the two stories do kind of come together. Um, Xerxes uh, got as far as Athens, and he burned Athens down. Um, his next city on his route would have been Corinth. It was only 45 miles away. So he had come over, come down through Philippi and through some other cities and conquered them and burned Athens. His next stop would have been Corinth. Uh, he did suffer, I think at that time, a, uh, a land defeat. His army had suffered a defeat. But they would supply the army with their navy, their ships along the coastland, would um, bring their supplies, food. Um, when I, I read a, a biography of Alexander the Great and you know, all these, these big towers they used to attack cities, they were dismantled and carried on the ships. And when they got to where they wanted, they unload them. So they used the ships a lot. Well, the Greeks had managed to put together a, a navy, and they defeated the uh, Persian navy. So Xerxes lost his supply line from you know, getting supplies carried to him by ship. He also had crossed the Bosporus on a pontoon bridge. All the Greek navy had to do was sail north, burn that bridge, and he and his whole army would have been isolated and trapped in Greece. So he immediately left and went back to Persia. <laughs> and that's where Manasseh started, he just He went, yes. And as Herodotus said, he was looking for comfort in his harem. And that's when he selected Esther, yeah. So these two stories do fit together some. Um, anyways, after they left, uh, not an awful lot happened for the next century. Um, but then Alexander the Great started to raise, rise up in power in Macedonia, which is just to the north um, in Greece. Now, he did not um, basically subjugate these cities to his empire. What he did was he formed a league. So he had all these independent city-states, and he got them to basically sign treaties with each other and cooperate rather than fighting with each other all the time. And so they formed a league, and they backed Alexander as he started his uh, conquest through Persia. Well, he died about a dozen years later, and um, the control of his empire got split up. So you had the Ptolemies in Egypt, and the Seleucid Empire was across the north and stretched from India up to Greece. But the Grecian cities were pretty much kind of just left independent. They were influenced a lot. Um, 
again, we, we had talked last week about the Seleucid Empire in Egypt. They founded Alexandria, which was a center of Greek um, knowledge and wisdom, and they, that's where the Greek New Te our Old Testament was translated. So they had a lot of interplay with, with Corinth, but the city was still independent. And so this, this went on for about a, one and a half centuries. So the city was pretty well independent. Not a lot of, you know, there weren't any empires coming and conquering and doing anything. But uh, by this time, it was about 146 BC. And there was a new empire to the west, rising in power. And that was the Romans. So in 146 BC, Rome attacked Corinth destroyed the city and left it in ruins. And it stayed in ruins for a century. So that's leading up to where we're at now. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth. And he established it as the, basically the um, capital of that province. So it was a built by Rome, by Julius Caesar, no, it was prior to him being Caesar, right? I think that was when he was Caesar. He had, a, it might have been a picture of historical, but it was kind of talking about he was in that area and defeated some battles. Yeah. But I can't remember who conquered the city 100 years before. That was part of the Roman Empire. Um, so it was, it was rebuilt in 44 BC. Um, in 37 BC, um, Herod the Great began to rule in Jerusalem. So now we're getting into contemporary history at the time of Christ. So Corinth was founded by Julius Caesar. It's a government com and, com and commercial center. So the commerce was driven by geography. If you look at Greece, it's like a large peninsula between Italy and Turkey. Great big peninsula. But at the southern end, it's almost, the southern tip is almost completely cut off by a channel of water. But not quite. So you've got this large, almost island at the south uh, part of, of uh, Greece. And it's called the Peloponnese. So if you hear about Peloponnesian this or that, that's what we're talking about. And it was about the size of the state of New Hampshire or Massachusetts. So it's a large piece of land down there. Uh, not like Texas, <laughs> more like one of our smaller states. Um, and so it's connected to Greece by a narrow strip of land, an isthmus. And this narrow strip of land is only four and a half miles wide. It's almost an island. Um, and so, again, cargo was being carried by ships. We mentioned that before with the armies. Well, you know, Paul traveled by ships. There was all this seafaring going along, along the coastlands. And when they came to this isthmus, the ships had a choice. Either you sail around the Peloponnese or you drag your boat across it. If you chose to sail around the Peloponnese, that's an additional 250 miles 
down a, around a rocky coast that exposed to all the storms coming off the Mediterranean. It was really a dangerous and difficult and long voyage. Whereas you could drag your boat across this little isthmus and then you're basically sailing down an inland waterway. So there were a lot of boats being dragged back and forth across the isthmus. Did they have an entrepreneur setting up a way of doing that? Oh, that's Corinth. <laughs> so anyways, with, they built at some time in the past, they said it's before, it was, it was there when they, they first started writing about, you know, uh, reading some of these ancient historians. There was a road there already, and it was paved with limestone block. It was a paved rock highway. And you look at the pictures of it, and there's these two grooves worn in it from all the wagon wheels going back and forth. And they would bring the ships up to, there was a port at each end, so there's two ports, four and a, about four miles apart. Um, the one on the east is called Centria, it's mentioned in scripture. Um, but they would, they would come into, the ships would come into the port, they would unload all their cargo, and that would be put in the wagons and carried separately. They'd put the ship on a large, like a large wagon and drag it over, and they calculated it took like a, between 100 and 200 men to pull this thing. They had to go up over like a 300-foot hill in the middle, so there was an elevation gain. And it basically took all day, <clears throat> but, and about 200 men to do it, so... Um, but it saved so much distance and so much time that it was worthwhile. So shipping went back and forth east-west across this isthmus. This isthmus was also the only land bridge between mainland and the Peloponnese. So all the land travel went north-south across here. So you got two intersecting major transportation routes and Corinth was sitting right on top of that. And no and, control lines. And they had, and since it was a commercial center, they probably did a good job of collecting taxes from Rome. And, and there was all this, you know, you want your boat hauled across, you have to pay all the laborers, you have to pay the management of the boat hauling company. And so um, they made a lot of money from trading and from taxes. Um, historically, Nero started to dig a canal across here. As I asked, no it didn't get very far. There was a canal completed around 1880, almost 18 centuries later. Someone finally built a canal across it. And you've probably seen pictures of it. It's at the deepest, it's, it's only, the canal is only 80 feet wide. <coughs> So you can't get a freighter through there. And the walls are almost vertical. And so it, it was not a commercial success, but it is a tourist attraction. And you may see pictures of a, like a small tourist liner sitting in a canal with these vertical walls on both sides of it. A lot of times on, um, if you're going on the internet, they'll have clickbait and they'll show that picture of this, it looks like a, Little, little ocean liner stuck in, well, that's what it is, is the canal through there. 
Yeah. So anyways, Corinth is a commercial city with two associated seaports. Corinth itself was not down on the lowlands. It was back on the Peloponnese in higher ground, and it was up against uh, like a tabletop mountain where that was fortified, so if they got attacked, they could all retreat up there onto the mountain for defense. So they had a more defensible position for the actual city. Um, if you look at maps today, um, it, it shows you the location of the old city. There is a new Corinth, but it's down closer to, to the isthmus. So, it had a Greek history, it had Roman history. You've got all these traders from the, from the east coming through and the west. Lots of different cultures all mixing together here. Um, lots of temples with lots of gods. Remember Athens? Paul says, you've got temples to every god, but there's one unknown one, and I'm, that's the god I'm proclaiming to you. Well, Corinth was kind of like that. Um, now, ancient Corinth, before it was destroyed by the Romans, had a temple to Aphrodite. That's her Greek name. Her Roman name was Venus. She was the patron goddess of prostitutes. And it's recorded that the temple had a thousand prostitutes working there. So that gives you an idea of the wickedness of this city. There's also, they had coined a Greek word, korintiadzo. It's a verb. It means to fornicate. Literally, it means to act like a Corinthian. Today, we have a similar word, sodomy or sodomize, after Sodom. Well, in those days, in, in Greek and um, Roman times, instead of referring to Sodom, they referred to Corinth as the ultimate dregs of um, sexual abuse <coughs> and depravity. So that city had been destroyed, um, but still seaports are kind of known for prostitution, and they had two of them. Um, so that's part of the problems that they had. Again, this is, this is the kind of city where this church was located. Um, another thing they had was um, a lot of different social classes. So Julius Caesar rebuilt the city, and at that time in Rome, uh, commentary said there was tons of freedmen. These are former slaves who have either worked their way out of slavery and bond slavery, or they've bought their way out of slavery. And they said they had an overabundance of freedmen in Rome. Socially, they were the slaves were the bottom class, freedmen were the next one. They were just above the bottom class. Julius Caesar basically rounded them all up, and he populated his new city with freedmen. So they were basically about next to the lowest class of society. Um, now, we've also been talking about all the commercial activity and the governmental activity. So you had people who were wealthy. So you had the bottom, almost the dregs of society, and you had the very wealthy in the same city. Um, when we look at the Lord's Supper, we had people from both those classes in this church. 
and they were not doing a very good job of melding together. So that explains where that comes from. And then finally, one last thing, and we'll get into our, back into our Bible. Um, the Peloponnese, Corinth was on the northeast corner. On the west side of the Peloponnese was a town called Olympia. Can you guess what they did at Olympia? They had the Olympic Games, the largest athletic games in, Cor in Greece. Corinth had a smaller version of that called the Isthmus Games. So they were very familiar with athletic competition and as we go through Corinthians we'll see some athletic metaphors that Paul uses. Okay, so that's kind of geography, secular history. Let's look at some of the New Testament history where Paul comes and visits them. In the, this is on his second missionary journey. And it kind of starts, let's turn to the book of Acts. I'm going to just summarize chapters 16 and 17. So Paul um, leaves Tarsus, or the, not Tarsus, but uh, Antioch, the city of Antioch, with Silas to go on his second missionary journey along with uh, Timothy. And I think he picks up, actually picks up Timothy on the way. I can't remember. But they're going through Asia and they're revisiting all the churches that he had established on his first journey. And this is one of those places where, you know, God says, no, I don't want you going up into Asia. And it's like, Paul say, I, you know, I want to evangelize these people. God said, no, I don't want you to evangelize these people, which seems kind of strange. But then he has that vision of the man from Macedonia who says, come and help us. So God wanted them in the Macedonia. And, and so they go to Macedonia and they go to Philippi. That's the first city they come to. And he's having a successful mission, mission there. People are responding to the message. The trouble is there's this demon-possessed girl who's following him around um, who's a prophetess and she so irritates Paul that he finally casts the demon out of her. Well, her handlers had been making all kinds of money because she was a prophet. And when Paul did this, they lost their income. So they took him to the authorities and they said, this guy is preaching a religion which is contrary to the Roman religion, which basically meant you had to worship the Caesar. And so the authorities had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison, both of which are violations of their Roman citizenship. Um, that's when you have that earthquake that night. They're both released. The Philippian jailer is converted, and the authorities are trying to cover up their horrible discretion of beating Roman citizens, and they send Paul to the next city, which is Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they're again, they're received well, they're having a profitable ministry, but here's the Jews who get upset with them because they're jealous, they're, they're losing people from the synagogue. They, they consider uh, calling Christ God to be blasphemy. 
So the Jews uh, rise up and drive them out of Thessalonica. So they go to Berea, which is the next city there up in the Macedonian area. Um, again, they're, they're received well. The Bereans are commended because they actually would listen to Paul and they go in and they check their, you know, if he gave them a reference like from Isaiah 60, you know, 53, they'd go and look at it and say, well, he's right. Um, but the Jews from Thessalonica followed Paul and Timothy and Silas to Berea and threatened Paul and so they sent him to Athens. Timothy and Silas stayed behind to help the churches get established. Paul went to Athens where he lectured to all the philosophers who were far too well educated to accept this myth of resurrection. And he had a few converts, but not many. And from there, he went to Corinth. And at Corinth, um, Timothy and uh, uh, Silas came and, and met him there. And so this was in 50 AD when he arrived in Corinth. So Christ was crucified in 33 AD, so this is 17 years after Christ's death on the cross, just to put things in perspective. Not that long. So that brings us to Acts chapter 18, which is actually the record of Paul in Corinth. I think what we'll do is we'll let's start by reading the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 18. Do you want to start first? After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who was recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Every Sabbath, Sabbath he reasoned, reasoned with the synagogue in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, Acts 18, 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied in the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes and protest and said to them, Your your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus, Justus, a worshiper of God. Cyprus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching the word of God. Okay, so, so Paul arrives in Corinth alone. He doesn't have his companions with him, but he, his practice was always first to go to the synagogue, preach in the synagogue. And I'm assuming that's where he met um, Annas and Aquila, excuse me, Aquila and Priscilla, um, who were Jews. They had formerly been in Rome. The 
Romans were cracking down on Christians or Jews and it chased them all out of the city and so they had gone to Corinth. Um, and so he gets to know them in the synagogue and he stays with them. And it says they're all tent makers. You know, so he was, he was a part-time evangelist at this time, a part-time missionary because I think um, what I'm guessing is he may have been working with them for room and board, essentially. You know, if you'll let me live here, I'll help. So they're all spend the day sewing tents, and, and then when he has time, he goes to the synagogue and, and reasons with the Jews. And, and I thought, now wouldn't that be interesting to be sitting around working, sewing tents, and being able to talk to Paul? <laughs> so I think Aquila and Priscilla got a lot of extra training that other people did not get just from sitting with him, uh, having them in, him in their homes, and, and it was a real blessing to them. So anyways, Silas and Timothy had stayed behind in Berea and, you know, in order to strengthen the churches up there. So they finally arrived and they were able to provide more financial support. So Paul at that time went to full-time missionary activity. Um, it is very possible that, that they were working to help support Paul, but they also brought gifts. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Would someone like to read verses 15 and 16 for us? So he had gone from Philippi to Thessalonica earlier. So uh, Philippi was a wealthy city. It was uh, named after uh, Philip, Alexander's father, and it was the center of Macedonia. It was supposedly, I think there was a lot of gold mines around it. So they had a lot of wealth there. And so they provided gifts to Paul. And so when um, Silas and Timothy showed up, they may have been bringing a gift a monetary, monetary gift uh, from the Philippians with them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would have been Acts 16. Right. I think that was Philippi, yeah. And that, and that makes sense because um, he did not find a synagogue in Philippi, so he went to the river where the, he knew there was a place of prayer. <laughs> Philippi was like a little Rome. It was very, very Roman. It was a, a Roman province with all the rights of Rome. When you read Philipp, uh, Philippians, you know, they reference uh, um, Caesar's household. They reference the uh, Praetorian Guard. Nobody else knew or cared about them, but the Philippians did because they were so closely connected to Rome. So they had sent some money. Um, Anyways, the Jews resisted in the, uh, where he was preaching, uh, again, because it didn't fit Judaism. Just, they considered Christ to be a heretic. So he kicked him out of the synagogue, 
But there was a believer who lived right next door to the synagogue. And so... Yes, we're, we're doing an introduction to 1 Corinthians. We haven't gotten to verse 1 yet, but we might not. <laughs> I knew that. We're in Acts chapter 18, where it talks about Paul being at Corinth on his second missionary journey. So the Jews resisted, and that's in verse 6 and 7. Um, he goes to the home of Titius Justice who lived right next door to the synagogue, which may have been very handy for preaching to those who came to the synagogue and came next door to see and talk to Paul. Uh, verse 8 tells us that Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, was converted. He believed in the Lord, his whole household. Um, and it seems that uh, he left that position <laughs> or was kicked out of that position later. Uh, We'll get to that a little bit later. But um, in verses 9 through 11, it's, it's interesting because the Lord gives Paul a vision. And he tells him, don't be afraid. Um, on a Wednesday night, several weeks ago, I was talking about prayer for believers. And Paul always prayed for boldness. And you think, well, Paul, what did he need boldness for? But here's a case where Paul, you know, God's saying, don't be afraid. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So I'd like to read verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Okay. So he's coming from Athens where, of course, you've got the great orators. So he says, I'm not coming with superior speech or this you know, wisdom that they debated as philosophers. Um, he says, I'm with you in weakness, in fear, in trembling. So he's going into you know, basically the, the armpit of the uh, Greek uh, nation, and, and he is uh, somewhat afraid. You know, he's been, I mean, he got kicked out, you know, chased out of Thessalonica. He got beat up and flogged in Philippi. Uh, it was wearing on him. And so God sends him an encouragement here with a vision. Do not be afraid any longer. Go on speaking. Be silent. And God says, you know, I'm with you. No one will attack you. I will protect you from any attack. Uh, because I've got a lot of people in the city. There's a lot of people that God knew um, that he was going to bring to himself. They needed to hear the gospel so that they could believe and be saved. And those were the steps that God goes through in, in uh, saving people. They need to hear the gospel, believe, 
and then they're saved. And so God sent them uh, Paul, and he says, I, I, they're here, I want them saved, <clears throat> but we got to go through the steps, so you have to go preach to them. And I, so that's what you're going to do. And it tells us he's there for a year and a half, a year and six months. And during this time, just to connect it to other uh, books, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. So he's here for a year and a half. He writes First and Second Thessalonians. Again, concerned about um, those people that he had left behind. Um, okay, in Acts chapter. 18, just going on, looking at the end of it. In verses 12 through 18, um, we've got a record of one event of persecution here in Corinth. Um, it says, while well, Galileo was pro-council of Archaea, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Galileo's they know when he was proconsul. He was there for about a year and a half. So this was in 51 AD. And this, this one detail here is used actually to, to set up like a data point for dating the events of the New Testament. <clears throat> so that's an important little blip there because they know when he was proconsul. <clears throat> so anyways, the Jews come and they say, he, he's... He's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Which law? Well, the Jewish law. Well, he's a Roman judge. He doesn't care. He says, why are you coming to me with your religious squabble? And that's basically, he says, if it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, oh Jews, I'd be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there's questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. He drove them away from the judgment seat. He kicked them out of the courtroom. He sounded rather irritated with the way he spoke. So that, that didn't work out good for the, the Jews from the synagogue. So they were upset by this, so they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And again, Galileo didn't care. So it's not clear who was beating up Sosthenes whether it was the Jews, because they, his plan was so bad, or whether it was because the Greeks, who were so, by this time, put, irritated with the Jews. Anyways, Sosthenes got beaten. And that leads to a, a little bit of interesting uh, coincidence. So we will take a brief look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse... One, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Same guy. Apparently, it, apparently the, the, the Jews beat some sense into him, and he became a Christian. <laughs> or he thought, I'm going to look for a little nicer religion, because I just got beat up. And it's pretty well, a lot of the commentaries say, we really think this is the same guy. And the reason he's included here is because they know who he is. So. Okay. Well, that's, oh. You don't think that Sosthenes was like letting Paul have a little more access, or by this time he said, "I'm going to the Gentiles, forget the Jews." We, yeah, they, they don't really know who beat mm -hmm. who beat 
um, Sosthenes Upper Y. So, but we need to close there. So, uh, Joe, would you like to close for us, sure. please? Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it speaks to us personally today, even as it tells us about the history of what took place with your people in the past. We thank you that we have these examples of, of what took place. We, have, we thank you that they're speak. We just realize that you're a living God that still speaks to us today. We thank you for that. We thank you this hour, for the next hour of town when Robert brings the message and we have the worship time. Thank you for that. And we just pray, Lord, that you'll um, be with us and we'll, we'll guide and direct and we'll follow what you have for us to do. In pressure and Amen. Amen.